Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Robbie Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. Robbie, what have you been up to? Well, I went to L.A. to see the opening of the National Football League season. The Bills were playing the Rams, the uh, defending champions. And it was amazing. Like, this stadium out in L.A., SoFi Stadium, is pretty cool. Also, the Bills looked frighteningly good. Uh, you guys I, did, too. I mean... Yeah. Actually, yeah. It, it just looks, once again, like it's just two teams on a collision course uh, with one another, So, it, which is kind of cool. Yeah. I would say, I hope I don't have to take another trip to, to Kansas City for that. I'll come for other reasons, but... Um, I don't know if I want to go back in that stadium after what happened last year. So hopefully we'll be hosting you. Well, guys I mean, that's Park. where, I mean, if you want to see the AFC championship game, it's, I think the rules now say that's where it's played is Arrowhead. Well, I'm going to save uh, this audio. Actually, I'm going to save this three, audio. Three years, I suppose. It well, well spe- no, speaking four, of the four Chiefs. Four years, four years. Well, yeah, you know, all good things come to an end. But speaking <laughs> of the Chiefs, there's there's some poll from your local newspaper that's pitting you against Patrick Mahomes. Is that right? Yes, for the most absurd thing, best local hero. Uh, oh, nice. And uh, I'm going to lose. <laughs> Where can our listeners find this? Where is it? Casey uh, Starr? It's it's called uh, the pitch. So it's it's pitch weekly is the is the newspaper and it's like an alternative weekly in, in Kansas City. And uh, anyway, but it's okay. Like people feel free people to go and vote. get out there. I, yeah, get out there. I haven't vote. voted because I'm I'm basically conceding defeat to. I mean, it's football season. It's not just like it's it's not just like I'm up against Patrick Mahomes. If it's I'm up against Patrick Mahomes like during football season. Like this, I know how this is going to go. Uh, I have a funny thing to tell you that has to do a little with your name and also with the way naming conventions have changed. Uh, you know, in these new generations of us raising oh children, which I'm is curious. Uh, so true. Uh, his you know he's very into baseball, and I coach his team with always classmates from the third grade and he wanted to be more challenged and play more baseball. So I signed him up to play on a fourth grade team in a fourth grade league. So he's on two teams right now. And so he's the only third grader out there and he's actually doing very well. It's really fun to watch. But after his first game, we were sitting at dinner and we were talking about the different kids on the team. And Diana was like, well, uh, what about that kid, Robbie? Uh, do you like, like Robbie? He seems like a good kid. You see like you and he seem to get along. And True's like, Wait, how'd you say his name? And and she goes, Robbie. And he goes, Mom, his name is Ravi. And she's like, No, no, his name is Robbie, like short for Robert. And she and True goes, Robbie is not a name. Ravi is a name. Good for <laughs> like, you, True. So Good it was just you. so funny. Like True, you know, had never heard anyone called Robbie 
but he knows you. So he's like, no, Ravi is a normal name. You you clearly are pronouncing this wrong. And uh, so we explained to him, no, this is a pretty common name. And he blew his mind, um, which is just a funny it's thing. Because like, we millennials are just, we refuse to, you know, I know your parents are not millennials, but like he's not used to hearing the names that we all thought were so common growing up. Well, that's good. It's funny timing. I was just talking to my assistant this morning who was joking about how often people get my name wrong. And I was like, man, it's every day. I don't even, I don't even blink at it. I don't, it doesn't, doesn't bother me. It's so common. Yeah. Well, True uh, thinks that your name is a garden variety standard name, and he thinks that Robbie is uh, weird and unconventional. <laughs> so, wow. Well, uh, I don't know what to say to that, other than maybe maybe it's time to talk some trash. And uh, we had so many good candidates this week. Uh, this is you know some weeks it gets harder than others. This was an easy one. I think we're going to talk about. There's a movie out there that Breitbart is distributing called My Son Hunter. Jason, what can you tell us about this movie? I'm sure you've watched it already. Uh, no, but you were, no, I have not, um, but you were kind enough to send me the article by the person from Slate by Dana Stevens at Slate, uh, who literally says in the article, I watched the movie so that you don't have to. Uh, and there's so much about this that is fascinating to me. I, what I like about this more than anything, I think, is that this seems to be like a new niche industry for people who consider themselves canceled, right? Like the, so it's, it's, it's right wing fiction, like, like uh right wing fan fiction, but it stars like Gina Carano. And it's like directed by the, the guy who was the main bad guy from Goonies. And I guess all these people are people who have gone out and said like loony stuff and been like ostracized in Hollywood. So now there's just, but Jason, you said it. You said it's fiction. I'm confused because I think, from what I understand, Gina Carano does like Adam McKay style asides to the camera, and this is what she says in one of those asides. Apparently, she says this is not a true story, except for the facts. So maybe this is true. Maybe yeah, I felt like story. that was uh, a, a lawyer uh, wrote that line, and and yeah. uh, and so yeah. Um, the reason I call it fan fiction, um, because obviously there's a lot of stuff in here that's just based on uh, like the stuff that they got off, you know, right wing websites. Like it literally, I guess there's a plot point where somebody's like, you need to go read these right wing websites. But I guess it ends with like a dream sequence where Hunter Biden's arrested or something. Yeah. So it, it goes in that direction eventually. Yeah. And so Gina Carano is one of the people on here. She was on The Mandalorian. There's this other guy who plays Hunter Biden, I guess, who's this guy, Lawrence Fox, who was on Gosford Park and apparently, you know, has had some views that people deem controversial. So he was like, like a legitimate like actor. type guy. Yeah. But I think like, I just have a note for them, Jason, based on, on this article, right? Which is characterization. I know you and I have been thinking about characters a lot. Like they have Joe Biden as a character in the story. And from what I understand, they can't decide on who Joe Biden is. He's like half bumbling idiot in this movie and half like criminal mastermind of a global conspiracy. And, you know, in a way, this is helpful because it actually mirrors real life, the way that conspiracy theorists talk about the world. There's like, you know, the COVID conspiracy is a good example, which I imagine this guy in Lawrence Fox is a trafficker. And like a lot of these people who believe in these COVID conspiracies can't 
make up their mind to whether we're just like we're dealing with incompetent bureaucrats or people who are so sophisticated in their sort of mind control, Bill Gates style, like injecting sort of mind control through the vaccines or whatever, that we would be so sophisticated that we could do that and conspire to do that. But we're also bumbling idiots who can't get our guidance straight, you know? It's like a very serious version of, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a uh, I can't remember who played Reagan in it, but it was, um, I think it was Dan Aykroyd maybe played him in, uh, in a silent live skit, um, where like it was Reagan's public persona, right. Where he was like, Oh, we're all folksy. And like, you Oh, know, I do remember this. Goofy yeah, yeah. And all that. And then as soon as, uh, like the, like pre as soon as like the public would be gone, it'd just be him and like a few staffers. He would go into like, you know, tactical operations center commander, like he was like knew everything going on. It was like, sounded completely different, but it's like that, but come to life. Like that's their version of Biden. Yeah. They also refer to the Biden family as like an enormous crime family, which I felt yeah. like was some projection. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, by the way, we've, I think we've all been around politicians who are kind of like that, where they kind of like super nice to other people. If you've ever been an oh, aide yeah. to somebody and then they like the minute the door closes, they're lunatics. Uh, so there is like something, some element of truth. that sure. I don't think that's, I don't think that's Biden. I wish in many ways that Biden, you know, not that Biden's incompetent or anything, but that like the door closes and he becomes like this bare knuckle, you know, ruthless bureaucrat. But, uh, but I have a counter proposal to them that we we should make a Jared Kushner movie, and I think it would be really interesting. And I don't even think we have to make anything up. I actually think it's funny enough on its own, you know. Uh, what, what, let's let's like workshop it here. Like, what what happens in the Jared Kushner movie? I think this is like, yeah, if Mike Murphy, if he's listening, I, I invite him to come in, like, because he's fond of making fun of like the idiot son-in-law uh, stereotype. You know, to me, I think like I'm trying to think of the tone we're looking for here. It's like the unintentional comedy of Jared Kushner to me, I find interesting, you know, and yeah. him, him taking himself deathly serious would be funny by itself. Like just him walking around acting like he really, like he, he's the man. Uh, yeah. You got to have a scene uh, that includes him in Iraq in his like Brooks Brothers uh, blazer with his uh, black body armor vest over it. Yeah. Like didn't remove the blazer first. Like that was one of my favorite yeah. things he ever did. Yeah. And I actually know the actor for this. So if you've ever seen Succession, uh, Cousin Greg uh, from Succession, he lives, I shouldn't think he lives on my block because I see him at this coffee shop all the time. I think he'd be perfect. He's tall. He's a little bit awkward. He's He's good at playing that sort of like... Like, I think the succession like tone for our listeners who watch succession, I think it would be good for this. So listeners, well, send, us some, Go yeah, send us some voicemails. Send us some voicemails. Yeah. Send us voicemails. Tell us a little bit about how you would handle this film and uh, maybe yeah. we'll get, we'll get working. You know, this will be I the mean, first. It's totally doable. If Breitbart can do it. $2 million crowdfund, I think is what it yeah, took to make this. They filmed it in million dollars. Yeah. yeah. Like we just, we could just go to Serbia and do it. Like, I mean, it's no big deal. Like, I mean, what is that? A weekend? And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Robbie, as you are probably aware, I think I've mentioned it a time or two on this show before. I had a book that came out a couple of months ago. I know I've mentioned it a lot of places because it's done very well. So a lot of people found out about it. It's very nice. People read the book and they contact me and, and it's great to have those exchanges. What's always interesting to me, from time to time, people will read the book and say, I think that I probably do need therapy after reading the book. Like, I, I appreciate the example that you laid out. They're like, but I, I don't know where to go in my community to get therapy. And I think our sponsor, BetterHelp, is probably a really good solution for a lot of these people. And I've told them such. 
Yeah, and this is a really great option for people who are looking for therapy. It's convenient, accessible, affordable, and it's entirely online. And you can get matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey. And if you don't like your therapist, you could switch therapists anytime. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash M54 today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash M54. Toward the end of my baseball season, uh, one of the things that is happening is that in order to fit in some of the makeup games, uh, we're playing a lot of much later in the evening games. So it's not uncommon right now for me to get back to the house at like midnight. So by the time I get in to bed and onto my Helix mattress, like I need to be able to fall asleep right away. And boy, is it clutch to have a mattress that will allow you to sleep uninterrupted so you can maximize the effectiveness of that limited amount of sleep. Well, that's not a lot of sleep, uh, but thankfully you're at least doing it on that Helix mattress. They have 14 unique mattresses, including a collection of luxury models. So you take this sleep quiz and in under two minutes, it matches you to a perfect mattress for you. It's personalized and it's shipped straight to your door free of charge. And there's no better way to test out a mattress than by sleeping on it in your own home. And they have a hundred night risk-free trial. You could try it out. If you don't like it, you could send it back for a full refund. So Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com majority54 with Helix. Better sleep starts now. All right, well, let's talk about the news of the week, Jason. Uh, I want to start with what I think is a general trend that we're seeing right now, which is Republicans struggling with the consequences of some of their culture war politics. And I think I'll start with this Lindsey Graham proposal that he just dropped for a 15-week national abortion ban. And this was intended to unite the Republican Party on the issue of abortion because it's it's been very clear that they've been struggling on this issue recently. Uh, the bill would include, apparently, exceptions for rape, incest, the life and physical health of the mother. Uh, he was not able to get his allies in the Senate to sign on to this bill. McConnell dismissed it out of hand, said that this would be an issue for the states. Uh, Cornyn said the same thing. Uh, there are There's an article in the New York Times that kind of goes through this. And what you see is that there are certain groups like the Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America group and others who really want this. And they want to get Republicans on the record. They want Republicans to go on the offensive as they see it on abortion. And I think their premise is that though Americans generally support abortion rights, that support drops significantly by the second trimester. So I think the theory is that they can put Democrats on the defensive here, but it seems like they don't have support either in the Senate. And it also seems like, you know, we've talked about this before, a lot of candidates around the country ran as extremists on abortion and are now basically like literally scrubbing their websites on this issue. So they can't get this issue straight. What do you make of this? I, I think that you're right. And that the people who've said this are right, that they realize they're in a free fall and they're trying desperately to sort of stabilize things and, and to get out of free fall, right? And and they 
they figure the way to do that is to get everybody on the same page because the worst, I mean, we see it with Democrats all the time is that when everybody is trying to distinguish themselves from the most uh, harmful attack of the party nationally, well, that's when you can't get everybody rowing the same direction and you can't get out of that sort of that jet stream, so to speak. Like you can't, you can't get out of that problem. Uh, that said, like, it's not working uh, and it, and it's fun to watch. I actually just pulled up this text thread that I have with a couple of political friends uh, where it starts. One of them said this is yesterday. One of them said, I have a conspiracy like they were all excited. I've, I've thought of a conspiracy. And they said Trump wants the GOP to do poorly because that's better for him. So he sends Lindsay out there to do the thing that screws Republicans and targeted races most. And then my other buddy says, I agree with the first part. The second part seems complicated for them to pull off. Not complicated, but complicated for them. And I said, I think Graham thought he was getting out ahead of the parade and didn't realize the parade goers had other plans. But in general, I think Trump wants everyone other than himself to fail at all things. And everybody was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's probably it. So, yeah, like Trump, I do think, watches this whole deal and it's like, see, without me, you're all screwed. Like, I really do think, as an aside, that Trump has this idea in his mind that everything is zero sum, that like literally when every other person falls on misfortune, even if they're on his side, it's good for him. But uh, going back to the central point, I do think what Lindsey Graham thought he was doing was just jumping out in front of a parade that would work. And I think like the folks at National Right to Life convinced him that that would work. And everybody was like, dude, we don't want to talk about this. It's bad for us. There's no way to win on this, which they've now figured out after years and years of, you know, having all sorts of voters come with them on these issues. And for years, you know, I mean, how many of us have had conversations where we were like, look, they don't really want Roe overturned because then what would they talk to their voters about? And it turned out we were right about that. Yeah. And this comes as West Virginia just passed a ban and and now for keeping track of the post Roe world, you know, it's not just Roe versus Wade as, as people at the Cook Political Report talked about. It's the aftermath of Dobbs that has been particularly challenging for Republicans because they had all these trigger laws and they also have extremists in their wing who are pushing policies that they've promised. So in there's many states, including yours, that have uh, full abortion bans, Alabama, Indiana, Mississippi, South Dakota, Arkansas, Kentucky, Missouri, Tennessee, Idaho, Louisiana, Oklahoma, Texas, Wisconsin. Then you have states with six-week bans like Georgia and Ohio, and then states with 15-week bans like Arizona and Florida. And so people... This is what now is going on. And the Republicans now are basically, as we've talked about, they're they're having to run as incumbents. And there was this really interesting article in the New York Times, and I think it was Nate Cohn, where he essentially says normally these midterm elections are referendums on or do we say referenda? I don't know. But on the president. Right. So we all know, like, you know, when we do arena communications training, I get up and I say it's all about framing the choice in an election. Right. And it's either like more of the same or change elections. Right. If you think things are going well, you want it to be more of the same election. That's what you know Reagan ran, ran on in 84. Like it's morning in America, like famous ad. Right. Or you want to say it's a change election. Clearly, the Republicans should want this to be a change election if this were a normal midterm election. 
right? Like people tend to get their asses kicked in midterm elections. 2006, it went plus 31 Democrats, like it was a midterm for Bush. 2010, plus 63 GOP, the first midterm after Obama. That's what he called the shellacking. 2018, plus 41 Democrats in the House. So this tends to be the trend, but what's different here, as Nate Cohen points out, is that Trump is so dominant as a national figure that there are even more Google searches for Trump than there are for Biden, which is the first time that's ever happened where the president is, you know, like not getting as much attention as the previous nominee. And that this might not be a referendum election. This might actually be a choice. And the choice is not about democratic policy necessarily, but about Republican policies because they dominate the Supreme court and some of the things that they've been pushing both the Supreme court and the election denial stuff are capturing more headlines than the stuff that Biden's doing. I, I also have a, an additional theory about that, which is that the up and down, volatile, scary, just tragic and traumatic nature of our politics and of our democracy over the last six or so years, I think has raised the floor of where like lower information voters actually are. Like I think I think lower information voters are more informed. Um, now they get their, you know, there's a whole other debate about where they're getting their information, right? But they are more engaged and more interested, I think, than low information or, you know, every other cycle voters traditionally are, because there's this sense in the country that you can't look away for very long. Uh, or you're going to miss something really important and, th- you know, and things are going to get out of hand, right? And so obviously something like the Dobbs decision is going to break through anytime, but the overall sense that, oh, the Supreme Court is really out of control and oh, democracy is is really in peril here, right? I don't think that stuff gets through in a normal midterm in the past, but I think it gets through now because people's antennas are just up so much higher. Uh, right. and, and I think that's part of it, right? I think that as a result, people aren't playing to type, playing to form because you know, the dynamics have changed. They're just, they're just more engaged. Um, and then they're not, they're not just simply going, Oh, I'm not entirely happy with everything. So I'll vote against the party in the white house. They're actually paying attention to, Oh wait, but they control the, the Supreme court and they're blocking things in the Senate. Like they're seeing the partisan dynamics, I think more closely. And then the other thing I want to point out is like I get, and I'm actually kind of surprised by McConnell taking the position of, Hey, no, we want to leave this to the states. And I'm really surprised by how many uh, establishment figures in the party, like senators, are saying, no, 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 no. We think the states can decide this because obviously you have national right to life and others pushing them not to. But I want to make it very clear because that's going to be people listening to this are going to hear that talking point from their friends. When the issue of abortion comes up, they're going to say, look, no, they're not going to pass a national abortion ban if they take office. McConnell has said that they don't want to. Make no mistake, it doesn't matter what McConnell says now. It doesn't matter what these people say. If they get in power, they'll have no choice. Their constituency, the people who help put them in office, the people who they need to stay in office, they will force them to do it because if they don't, they will all lose primaries. And and so it yep. doesn't matter what they say about, no, 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 we're going to show restraint if you put us in power, we're not going to do this. It doesn't matter. Just you can take it to the bank. If they're in power, they will pass a national abortion ban. Yeah, it's it's so fascinating to think about, you know, and taking a step back, we just had the the final primaries of this year. So we are now squarely in general election season. You know, this is the post-Labor Day environment. We're fast approaching election day. 
a lot of the articles, a lot of the polls tell us there's reason to be optimistic. Like 538 has Democrats at a 71% chance of taking the Senate, 27% House. The House looks really tough. You know, Charlie Cook had a good article about what makes this different. Uh, and this is the Cook Political Report. And there's like some interesting data about how in 2018, Republicans polling was they were trailing Donald Trump's favorabilities. And, and it wasn't that Trump was very popular, but it was like the candidates were even less popular than Trump. What's interesting about 2022 is that the candidates are dramatically outperforming Biden's favorability. Now, to be clear, Biden is not very popular. And actually, the leading candidate here is Fetterman, who's outpacing Biden by 9.3. But you're seeing pretty good numbers for most people, like, you know, Hassan at seven points, Kelly outperforming Biden by 6.2. You go down the list. And then what Cook Political Report is pointing out is that, and Dave Wasserman, who's not like a very hyperbolic person, is saying that the Senate candidates that GOP are picking are really bad. They're, they're underperforming what we should be seeing. This is not a surprise if you start to think about who those people are. But he also, you know, to pour a little cold water on our audience, he also says that they're picking what, what at least Wasserman thinks are pretty good candidates for, for the House races, that they're a, lot of, they're a lot more diverse, both racially and gender-wise, a lot of veterans with really interesting stories and all that. And so what he was saying is that he thinks that if you're talking about candidate quality, that it actually tips in favor of Republicans when it comes to House races and is a real penalty for them on the Senate side. I think the other thing to think about for the Senate races that can be a factor in, in why they're outperforming is just standard old, I think this still can matter, standard old incumbency, right? I mean, yep. we we currently hold the Senate. We're trying to keep the Senate, right? We don't hold it by you know more than a hair, uh, literally. But with the exception of Fetterman, uh, we're mostly looking at incumbency races, right? And Fetterman, you know, he's been not just the lieutenant governor there, but like he's been a pretty prominent Pennsylvania politician, right? And then Oz is like from New Jersey, you know? And so I don't think that, you know, voters in Pennsylvania feel any sense of ownership or, you know, longtime familiarity with Oz, whereas they do with Fetterman. But then if you look like New Hampshire, you know, uh, Maggie Hassan, not only is she the incumbent, like she's a former governor. And then, you know, Mark Kelly, like, He's somebody who I, I think Arizona has really embraced. I mean, for one thing, like, yes, he's a, he's an incumbent. But on top of that, like the guy's a fighter pilot who, you know, is married to Gabby Giffords. And so I think Arizona feels like, you know, we've been going through it with this guy for a long time. And so yeah. I do think that's also a factor in in candidates outperforming because, you know, yeah, Biden is president, but I, you know, people don't feel like, oh, well, that's our guy in our state yeah. or our gal in our state. So that's why incumbency matters is people are, they're used to you. They're used to voting for you and you haven't, you know, really disappointed them to a great degree yet. Yeah. And even in our cases where we don't have incumbents, I feel pretty good about our candidates. Like Val Demings is outperforming expectations right now against Rubio, Beasley in North Carolina. Obviously, Tim Ryan is keeping it competitive against Vance. There's actually a poll that came out this week that had him ahead by a point. Now, when you factor in fundamentals, those races still look really tough because even if the polls tell us that they're ahead today, you know, their opponents often have more money than them. They have more name recognition in certain cases, like what you're talking about. But they also, you know, Biden's popularity and the popularity of the Democratic Party and the histories of those states tell us that we should be careful there. There's also the question of polling error, right? Because we know that in previous elections, polls have gotten this wrong. And often those, the places where they've gotten the elections most 
wrong are some of the states that we really need to win. And then you also have the inflation data that came out yesterday, which was not as positive as we were expecting. And, and if you look at it broken down by city, state, region, inflation is particularly bad in some of the places that are really relevant electorally. So Arizona, Georgia, and Florida are some of the three places that inflation is particularly bad. So we do have like some issues here, but I do buy into the premise of Nate Cohen to say like, look, like whether we win in the Senate or not, we're doing better than you would think in a midterm election. There is one other issue though, Jason, I wanted to bring up in terms of this culture war stuff to circle back to that, which is same-sex marriage. There was, you know, in July, the House astonishingly passed a bill to protect same-sex marriage and 47 GOP House members voted for it. That created a sense of optimism around momentum in the Senate. Schumer has said that there's going to be a vote next week on this. And uh, right now, it does not seem certain that they're going to get the 10 votes to override a filibuster for the GOP. It looks like you've got yes votes from Portman, Tillis, and... Uh, Susan Collins, and that maybe Murkowski is a yes, but it's not clear if they have any more than that. 71% of Americans support same-sex marriage, including majority of Republicans. How do you see this playing out? And like, how should our listeners be talking to their friends about this? They used it as a wedge issue against us for what, like four straight election cycles, at least five, maybe. Like, I think it's only fair uh, that people be talking about this and going on the offense to talk about it. The way that they're going to weasel out of it is because they see the polling. And like you said, the majority of Republicans support same-sex marriage. They're going to say stuff like, look, it's just not something that need that the federal government needed to do. You know, that that's what they're going to say, but you can't allow them to do that. I mean, it's got to be like, well, then what would be the harm in simply saying, that you can't get rid of it, right? Like, what would be the harm in that? It's not just that 70 you know, plus percent support it. Uh, it's not just that the majority of Republicans support it. It's not theoretical anymore. Like, this isn't like when, when they were using it as a wedge issue against us. Like, when you're talking to someone about this, they have a friend who is gay and married to a person of the same sex. And you can say to them, they refuse to say this person's marriage is a marriage and should continue like they refuse to protect your friend so-and-so's marriage from being disbanded by the state like i i think that's rather dramatic and crazy yeah it's amazing how much public opinion has shifted on this so the same polling service pew asked people the same question in 96 only 27 percent of people supported same-sex marriage so this has been a pretty dramatic shift you know I can remember being in a meeting uh, in Jefferson City when I was secretary of state where the Democratic Party had done a bunch of polling and they brought myself and the other statewide elected officials in. And this question, it was it was prior to uh, to um, the Supreme Court um, paving the way for for same sex marriage to be legal. And uh, and I remember they had a question on this and it was something like 40 percent. It had risen like something like 40 percent of people supported the idea of same sex marriage. And then 20 percent said they didn't know. 
I remember sitting there with another statewide official and, and I had been a, a very outspoken uh, proponent of uh, everybody coming out in favor of same-sex marriage. And another statewide official was like, look, see, it's only 40%. And then there's these 20% that don't know. But like that means the majority of people are not like at a point where they're in favor of it. And I remember saying, no, 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 I think you're reading that wrong. That 20%, those people are coming our way. But those are people who are saying, I know that I'm going to get there. Because nobody doesn't know what they think about the issue. But I said, those 20% are saying, I know that I'm going to get there. I'm working my way toward it. So I'm going to camp out in this don't know category right now. Uh, but I said, but what that means is that 20% are definitely not going to vote against someone for this view because they've basically said, no matter what I think about it, it looks like this ship has sailed. And that's where we are like plus a thousand now, right? Like this ship has sailed and they're just, I mean, they may as well be out there complaining about Obamacare death panels. Like they're just, they look so <laughs> out of touch and like four election cycles behind. Yeah, it's worth mentioning that Clarence Thomas in Dobbs said, you know, he's coming next for for gay marriage, essentially. Which so which is why this is important, right? Yeah, that's that's you're right. That's what we got to point out to me when they say, oh, well, look, it, it, the federal government doesn't need to weigh in. Yes, we do. It turns out. I just have like a message to these apps that helps you track your food. There should be a function on these to where it can automatically understand. I take my athletic greens every day. Like I shouldn't have to enter AG1 into the app every single day. It should just know. I actually need the opposite. I need something to remind me sometimes because I've been experimenting with the different times of day when I take this stuff. But you may be asking yourself if you're new, what is this stuff? So with one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, adaptogens to help start your day right. And it's a special blend of ingredients to support your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. And so right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day, and that's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that is athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Well, let's actually go international for a second, shifting gears you know, there was a story that caught my attention in The Economist, and you know, normally we don't talk about a ton of international stuff, but this one I found really interesting, which is Brazil has an upcoming election. Bolsonaro is in trouble, you know, the, the head of state in Brazil. Looks like he has a really good chance of losing. But what's fascinating to me is he is starting to sow distrust in the election. And there's a really good uh, companion to this piece in The Economist, which is they, they have this podcast called The Intelligence, where they interview people. And you could hear people talking about this, Bolsonaro supporters, who sound just like the American right wing in saying, you know, I can't imagine somebody would vote for Lula da Silva, the, the former president who's now running again. Like, if, if he wins, it's not legitimate. Bolsonaro is already talking about this. And there's a real worry that he won't leave office if he loses. And even if he does, it could be a scenario just like what we had here, potentially way worse, where he just, it shows chaos, you know, and that there is like either a military coup, an attempt at a coup, you know, riots in the streets. This is coming up. And I just wanted to stop and just say like, what 
what do we make of this? What do we do? Like when it used to be that people would try to copy uh, our democracy in good ways and try to like actually like use the influence of the U.S. to open up their countries and to reform their systems to make them less autocratic. It seems like it's now heading in the opposite direction. Well, we've talked about this before that like America is not in this isolated in a vacuum uh, dispute over whether to keep democracy like we are part of this autocratic thing that is you know sweeping across the world and we are a battlefield in it right like we're so trumpism wasn't invented in america like right wing you know new version of wannabe fascism was not invented in america by trump like it's it's been going all over the place for a while and these tendencies are there in a lot of countries and you're right. Like we've been the country that people have looked to and said, that's supposed to be the model. And when we waver, it puts other people around the world in danger. It puts democracy around the world in danger. So I absolutely think that these are tied together. It's why like it matters who wins the secretary of state's race in Arizona and Michigan and not just for the presidential election in 2024, but because like that's going to rebound or like reverb all around the world uh, in terms of how people view American democracy and what they can get away with in their quote unquote democracies in their countries. Yeah. And it comes at this time where I think like you have a robust China, you know, they're struggling right now to be clear, like their GDP estimates have been cut recently. They're dealing with all sorts of internal issues there. They're almost on their heels right now. And Russia's distracted by their own war. So you have this weird opportunity for the U.S. to actually and other democracies to take back the the world narrative around democracy because China had been, you know, the, the narrative even is, you know, early COVID days is, oh, China's more competent than the U.S. You know, they are, they're able to handle, you know, in that case, lockdowns, vaccine distribution, et cetera, manage their economy and innovation better. So they were almost selling themselves propaganda as a different kind of model, like autocracy could be more efficient, almost like a bigger Singapore. They're on their heels now. Their economy isn't growing as fast as it has in the past. They're dealing with all sorts of scandals, whether it has to do with the private sector, the real estate sector, the tech sector internally. And so you have this opportunity for the U.S. to now be like, all right, and other democracies, like we are the superior model. Um, and instead, what we're seeing is like actual democracies like India, which has its own problems like this. And Brazil, like the some of the biggest, most important so-called democracies in the world who seem to be taking the wrong lessons from us. And so, man, it just, I don't know if there's really an action item for people listening at home other than to pay attention to this. My sense is that this could get really bad and it'll be the kind of thing that, you know, could capture a lot of headlines and, you know, we're... we're we already see it like in India, for example, we're no, nobody's covering the fact that India is not really a democracy anymore. Like if you're listening at home, when was the last time somebody like has it has it even reached your doorstep that, for example, that India has some of the worst press freedoms in the world that you can't even report on politics there. You can't even have a movie get greenlit in India that offends the religious or political sensibilities of the people in power. You can't even get a show or a movie greenlit in India that shows Muslims in a favorable light in many places. Like that's how bad the press freedom's there. And we call it the world's largest democracy. You know, I get all of my Indian news from conversations with you. So I definitely go in the category <laughs> of people who don't know and wouldn't know otherwise. Uh, so yeah, They're I don't shrinking. think people have any idea. Yeah. 
And, you know, there's the global index. I think we might have talked about this a few months ago. The global indexes for democracies show that there are actually fewer democracies today than there were 10, 20 years ago. And we could be one of them. <laughs> we could be one of those places. We are actually, if you look at the, these indexes, when they say how democratic is the U.S., we are less democratic than we were. We are still a democracy and a republic. But it is a scary world that we're in. And it, and it makes it like, obviously, it, it situates what we're doing in the international context. But speaking of our democracy, there's one last thing I wanted to talk about just to update our audience on this sort of Mar-a-Lago fiasco that's going on. There's a couple of things that have happened since the last time we talked about this. There's this special master, which we talked about, this debate about the special master. The uh, Department of Justice and Trump's lawyers are going back and forth, both over an appeal of Judge Eileen Cannon's decision to appoint a special master, but they're also been going back and forth over who this special master would be if we have to pick a special master. Now, a couple of things important have happened. One is there has been an appeal filed. The U.S. Uh, Department of Justice has basically pushed back on Trump's claims of executive privilege, which is something we could talk about. And they basically say you can't exert executive privilege against the Department of Justice because the Department of Justice is part of the executive branch. They also uh, say you can't claim executive privilege when you leave office uh, and are trying to shield yourself from criminal liability. So that's one notable thing. Two is that they've agreed on a special master, though, candidate who will be handling this, which was actually one of Trump's suggestions, his lawyer's suggestions, which is a uh, a former judge who I think is like what they call senior federal judge here in um, in Brooklyn that was appointed by Reagan and the Department of Justice uh, said that they were okay with this person being the special master. So it seems like that that will actually move forward. So I'll just pause there to say like this thing continues to evolve. Uh, Washington Post reported that there were nuclear documents on our, you know, with nuclear secrets about our allies or at least one ally uh, among the documents that Trump had. So it you know, he had serious documents. Well, I mean, we should meditate for a moment uh, just on the absurdity of a president claiming, a, a former president claiming executive privilege for stuff that they've done as a former president. Like, I mean, he's just a guy who plays golf in Florida and lives at a golf club that he owns. Like, I mean, he yep. like, yeah, he might be president again, but like, he has no need for like, there's no, there's uh, no argument you could make for why he needs documents that a president needs, but a former president doesn't. I mean, it's just like a really audacious claim. Right. And if people really want to go down a rabbit hole on this, which I, I don't suggest, but like, let's say you're, you're, you're planning to get into debates over executive privilege at the Thanksgiving dinner table. There's a, and if you have conservative members of your family, I recommend there's an article by Andrew McCarthy in the National Review. So a conservative publication where this guy, I don't know a lot about who Andrew McCarthy is, but he does an extensive history of what executive privilege is. And essentially what he says is it is a privilege of the office, not of a person. And so he goes through all like the post Watergate precedent and laws and essentially says, when you claim executive privilege, by and large, it is the office that claims it, which means it's really important that Biden signs on to any claims of executive privilege, because essentially what he would be saying is, as the person who is the steward of the executive branch right now, Biden would be saying, hey, I have a reason to believe that the concerns of the executive branch uh, would be furthered 
by protecting the privilege of a former president, right? Which could happen. Uh, but sure, it is not like, happening. I mean, you can here. imagine yeah. that scenario, right? But it is not what's happening. It's actually the opposite. What what you know, Biden personally isn't involved, but the Department of Justice is saying actually the the executive branch's interests and our country's national security interests and that of our allies would be protected by actually holding accountable the people, including Trump and whoever else would be involved in this, who were hoarding very sensitive documents and who knows what we could find out, right? Like it could be that at the, you know at some point there's an indictment that Trump was using this information. We already talked about the Rolling Stone reporting that he was bragging about having dirt on Macron. You know, God forbid he was talking about nuclear secrets with people who, you know, aren't read into American intelligence. Like these are reasons why the executive branch would actually cut the other way and say, actually, our interests would be served by holding this guy accountable. And even William Barr has gone after Trump on this, like who is like a very flawed individual. <laughs> His own former attorney general has called him out over this. Like I could see where you're like, hey, I'm going to bring in the the former president to help me out with some stuff. I could I could see that. I don't think uh, anybody thinks Biden's doing that with Trump. I don't think like they're they're not running plays together, <laughs> No, you know, and if he no. is, it certainly doesn't involve nuclear secrets being kept in a golf club in Florida. Yeah. And then there's this question of the partiality of this judge. Right. And so there, there are two ways to look at this. This was a judge who was appointed at the end of the Trump administration on, on the recommendation of Marco Rubio, who has literally no public positions on any legal issues, which seems to be the playbook. A lot of these FedSoc types and who's the only interview that she ever gave before being appointed was this, i think over her wedding things. i think it was like a wedding an interview about her wedding right so this is she who like we're putting on the judiciary that in her application they're like they're like prior times you've been quoted in the press and it was like they reported on her wedding well now as some significant amount of democrats voted for her, i think over 10 uh, in the senate so shame on them um i think i i think it might have to do something to do with florida politics or something i have no idea but sure. like i'm puzzled as to why we would give up in on that and it's just that it's just exhibit 1000 in this sort of case that democrats need to be hard more hard-nosed about these these judicial appointments like it seems like the republicans are playing chess and we're playing checkers but i'll put that aside she seems to be highly motivated to rule in favor of trump she had actually announced before the oral arguments even that she was inclined to appoint a special master now in this particular case it was kind of accidental that she got this from what i understand because this was it was basically filed in in west palm beach which any number of judges could have gotten this but there's another case going on involving Peter Strzok, who's an FBI agent who's been going back and forth with Trump. I think Trump's suing him or something. And a judge recently ruled in the case of, uh, in, in Strzok's favor. And in that ruling, from what I understand, mentions that Trump's team filed specifically to have that case either moved or heard in a jurisdiction that, that Cannon sits in and where Cannon is the only judge who could have heard it. Hmm. So- so basically saying that Trump's team seems to really think that Cannon is very sympathetic to them is the short story. Now, do I know what's in our heart, what's in our head? But she seems, I would say I'm a little suspicious about what's going on with this judge. Uh, yeah, well, like, because her decision makes no sense. Like, she's no. she's even granting Barr jurisdictions for things that haven't even been filed by, by Trump's Even side. Barr. 
Even Barr yeah. is saying this, right? And this, this is tough because the the circuit court that this would be appealed to is six out of 11 are Trump people. And what happens is they pick three of them at random. And so there's a really good chance that that's not going to be good for the Department of Justice. And then if that's an adverse ruling, it goes to the Supreme Court. We know, you know who they are. So that's this is why I think the Department of Justice was like, sure, have your special master. Let's roll. Because it yeah, seems like they're, like, they're, they're saying, yeah. Yeah, which is tough. You know, it sucks. Like, it honestly sucks. It's a tough position for them to be in. But we'll we'll keep an eye on it. All right, for uh, Road to the Midterms, a race that hasn't gotten a, a whole lot of attention, but I think should because it could be a sneaky, interesting race, which is uh, Admiral Mike Franken, who is running in Iowa for the United States Senate against Chuck Grassley. And this is a race that hasn't, isn't on a lot of people's radars. And I'm not saying like, oh, this is definitely gonna be a dark horse race but i think it could be like grassley is getting up there and he's doing some things and saying some things that iowans are like wait really and franken's running a good campaign i hear about it uh every so often because uh our friend and friend of, of this show uh jd shulton who uh is actually unopposed in his general election for uh the, the iowa state house and is going to be an iowa state representative is, is also currently the political director for mike franken so i hear about the race and i just think people should check it out i think it's an interesting race i think he's actually going to give uh grassley much more of a run for his money than he had in like ever and uh it's it's possible that it could be a surprise so anyway i just would encourage people to look it up We give you a few things that you might want to weigh in on with us uh, in this episode. You can call us or you can email us. It's 508-687-2589, 508-687-2589. You can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. That's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenayo. Theme music provided by Kemet Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.